This podcast is brought to you by the Reform Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reformed views based on the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. The following podcast is the last of the four-part series of Professor Hankel's class, The Doctrine of Revelation. It is entitled, Revelation in Creation. Well, tonight we come to the last lesson in this year's planned classes. It has to do with the revelation of God in creation. Uh, there is revelation of God in creation, you know. <clears throat> we talked about the fact that revelation is particular and that there is no such thing as general revelation and that there is no revelation of God in creation for the wicked, but there is for the people of God. And that's what I want to discuss with you tonight. I have a very practical purpose also in discussing this subject with you tonight. Not only the issues that are involved in the truth of God's revelation and creation, but a very, very practical matter. It has repeatedly come to my attention that there is, even among our own people, frequently very, very little appreciation for the beauties of God's world. We are either too busy or too indifferent to pay attention to the beauties that crowd in upon us on every side. Let me tell you a little story to illustrate this. This is years ago. There was a time when I was uh, advisor, I think you call it, to Hope School Board. And it was coffee break. And we were standing outside uh, talking about various things, but the main topic of discussion at this particular coffee time was the Russian Sputnik, which had just been launched and had gone all the way around the globe. Everyone was quite excited about that, of course, and wondered what the future held. Well, the men who were on the school board at that particular time were discussing not only the Sputnik and the tremendous scientific achievement involved, but we're also talking about what this uh, prophesied for the future in the advancement of scientific technology. And they were all pretty sure that the day would come when man would be able to land on the moon, something which, as you know, did also happen. One of the men on the school board posed the question, why in the wide world would anyone want to go to the moon? And the response that was quickly given was this, well, if a Christian could go on a flight to the moon, how much more would he not appreciate the beauties of God's creation to be able to see the surface of the moon and to see planet Earth from the moon what a great appreciation this would give to such a man of God's world. That struck me because the fact of the matter was that behind us and behind Hope School was one of the most 
brilliantly beautiful sunsets I have ever seen in my life. The sky was ablaze with color. And I said to these men, look at the sunset. And they all turned around and took a look at it and said, yeah, and proceeded with their discussion about the moon. So I said to them, if you can't even appreciate the glory of a sunset here on Earth, what in the world makes you think you're going to be able to appreciate planet Earth from a platform on the moon? But that's exactly the way it is. The things to which we are accustomed, we have very little appreciation for. One man said that if it cost $5 to take a look at the moon, the line waiting to see the moon would be 10 miles long. But now, because we can see it every night for nothing, nobody pays any attention to it. There's something to that. The point I want to make tonight is this, that the people of God, above all else, ought to be able to appreciate, for more reason than one, the glories of God's creation. And I'm going to make an effort tonight to inspire in you a desire to explore as much as you possibly can the glories of God's creation. I want you to revel in the blue of the flowers along the side of Kenowa or Bagol or Burton. I want you to be amazed at the yellow of the bird's feet, which is scattered all through the ditches at this time of the year. I want you to think to yourselves when you watch an ant scurrying across the sidewalk, I have to follow his path. And I have to do that in obedience to the scriptures, which tells us to go to the ant and consider his ways and be wise. I want you to have some idea of the glories of this creation, for someday you will inherit it. And it will be the gift of God's grace to you and to the rest of the church. The main reason why the creation is the beautiful place that it is is because it does indeed reveal God. I want to take my starting place tonight in Article 2 of the Confession of Faith, and I'd like to read that with you before we do anything else. The article is entitled, By What Means God is Made Known Unto Us. We know him by two means. Now, first of all, I'd like to call your attention to a couple of pronouns here. Notice that the title of the article is, By what means God is made known unto us. Not by what means God is made known unto mankind. The article is not talking about general revelation. It's talking about the revelation of God to his people. God is made known unto us by two means, and the result is that we, we, that is those who are making this confession their own, we know him by two means. First, by the creation, preservation, and government of the universe which is before our eyes as a most elegant book, wherein all creatures, great and small, are so many characters 
leading us to contemplate the invisible things of God, namely, his power and divinity, as the Apostle Paul saith, Romans 1, 20. All which things are sufficient to convince men and leave them without excuse, and so on and so forth. Secondly, he makes himself more clearly and fully known to us by his holy and divine word. That is to say, as far as is necessary for us to know in this life to his glory and our salvation. So the confession of faith emphasizes the fact that the people of God know God by these two means, by the elegant book of the creation and by the sacred scriptures. The article does not go into the relationship between those two, something which I hope to discuss with you a bit tonight, but I want to emphasize at the very outset that creation is intended for God's people. And God gives it to us that through it we may come to know him, come to know him more fully, come to know him in all of his power and glory and majesty. Now, there was, of course, revelation of God in creation in paradise. To Adam and to Eve, our first parents, in the state of rectitude. That revelation of God to Adam and Eve in paradise took place through the creation. But it took place through the creation because, and I can't stress this strongly enough because I'm going to be coming back to this again and again, because the creation was formed by God's Word. That Word of God, which called every creature into existence, was the powerful, irresistible, efficacious Word of God, which gave existence to things that were not called them out of nothing into existence. Now the important part of that is this, that that word of God by which all creatures were formed was a word of God which said something to Adam and to Eve. It not only said that God himself by the word of his power had formed that creature, but that word of God in each creature, which we may, by the way, call the essence of every creature, that word of God said, first of all, how that creature stood related to and was a part of all the creation about it how it was related to the creation, how it depended upon the rest of the creation, how it was an element in the organic unity of the creation. 
what it did. When the Word of God created, say, for example, a peach tree, that Word of God in that peach tree explained to Adam how that peach tree stood related to apple trees and banana trees and cherry trees, to rose bushes and dandelions and the whole world of plants, but also to the earth in which it was planted, to the air about it which it breathed, and to the whole of God's creation, including the light that streamed upon it from the sun. The Word of God explained that. So that when Adam saw a given creature, and as it were, heard the Word of God in that creature, he could see the unique place God had given to that creature in God's world, and how in that unique place it stood related to all the rest of the creation. That was an amazing thing. Adam could see that. God explained that by that word that called that creature into existence. In addition to that, that word of God explained to Adam how that creature was, in its own unique way, related to God. That is, not just simply how it was dependent upon God and how it had been formed by God's power, but how, in its own unique way, it was a creature that revealed the power of God in a way different from any other creature. That was part of that word. Peach tree reveals the power and majesty of God in a way different from an alligator. Obviously, Adam could see that. This is the glory of God in a peach tree. This is the glory of God in an alligator. The Word of God said that. In the third place, that Word of God in each creature not only defined those things, but defined as well why God had created it. Not just generally that God created all things for His glory, which was true, but how that particular creature in the particular place it occupied in God's world could in its own unique way reveal some aspect of God's glory which no other creature could reveal. That was that word of God in that creature too. Adam could see that. Not only could Adam see that, but Adam could give a name to that creature as we read in Genesis 2 when he named the animals that was a human and creaturely echo of the Word of God in that creature. He could do that. He could say a word and say, this is that creature's name. 
because this is an echo of God's word in that creature. We give arbitrary names to creatures. We could, we call a, a horse, a horse. Dutch call it a park. Greek call, uh, Greeks called it hippos. Hippopotamus, water horse. Doesn't matter what you call it. You can call a horse a snore if you want to. The only thing is, if you want to make yourself intelligible, of course, you've got to make everybody else agree to call that horse snore. And if everybody in the United States agrees from now on, this is going to be the name of this animal, fine. Doesn't make any difference what you call it. That wasn't the case in paradise. There was only one name which Adam could give to every creature. And that one name was the only possible name because it was an echo, I can't think of any other word to use, an echo of God's word. It was a language that Adam used that was perfect. Perfect because not only was the grammar impeccable and without grammatical errors, but perfect because every word was an echo of God's word in the creation that was lost, of course, through sin. The Frisians are wrong when they think that Adam spoke Frisian in paradise. He didn't do that. He spoke a language that never, never was spoken again after the fall. And in that way, of course, when Adam spoke of the creatures in God's world and used the words that God used to give substance to the creatures, by that very use of these words, he sang his doxologies of praise to God. That was a wonderful thing. Now, that power was lost through sin. And it was lost through sin not only because of the fact that the language, the original language which Adam spoke in paradise was lost, but it was lost through sin because something dreadful happened in the creation as a result of sin. I remember my father reading me, reading me and my siblings from a Dutch uh, Bible story book, only he would translate. And there was one, one line in there that I never forgot. The author of this Dutch Bible story book said, the moment Adam sinned, the lights went off in the creation. I could picture that in my mind. It got dark. It got dark. Why was that? Two things especially happened which are of concern to us. The first thing that happened when sin came into the world was the fact that another word of God came into the creation. A terrible word of God. And that word of God which came into the creation was the word of the curse. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. 
That's a word of God too. That's a word of God as powerful, as real, as any word of God by which He created the creatures which we see all about us. That word of the curse is a word which is death. That is, no longer was God speaking of His love for His creation and His goodness towards His creation and revealing the riches of His own majestic and glorious attributes, but now He spoke of anger, of wrath, He spoke of his fury against the creation by means of which he drives the creation away from him into desolation and ultimate destruction. That word of the curse is so powerful in the creation that it almost drowns out the word of God by which all things were created. Almost. As we noticed in Romans 1, there's a little bit of that word left yet by which God manifests Himself to the wicked, but not much. And if you don't realize that, then all you have to do is ask yourself the question, what of the real essence of things can we see in the creation? We can't see the Word of God in the creatures which God formed. We can't, by looking at one of God's creatures, see all these things in it which Adam saw. Why not? Well, simply because of the fact that there is that powerful shout of God in the creation that curses the world because of the sin of man. Second thing that happened was that that same word of the curse came upon man himself so that he became spiritually blind to the word of God and unable to see it. Two things, you see. First, the curse in the creation so that the word of God was all but hidden there. And then the word of God's curse upon man so that he became incapable of seeing anything of God in the creation about us. It was a dreadful, dreadful state of affairs. But that's what happened. Now, I want to say this by way of some uh, parentheses because I don't want to dwell on this too long. But it is exactly this fact that makes all forms of theistic evolutionism total, utter nonsense and the denial of the reality of revelation. I dare say, I dare say that the theistic evolution, I'm not talking about now atheistic evolution, the evolutionist of the unbelieving uh, scientist who denies God altogether. I'm talking about these efforts to bring evolutionism within the framework of biblical teachings concerning creation. If theistic evolutionism is right, there is no revelation of God in the creation at all. None at all. Theistic evolution must of necessity deny the word of God's curse upon the creation. That's why, for example, 
every theistic evolutionist, without exception, insists that death was in the creation from its very beginning 15 to 20 billion years ago. Death is a natural part of the creation. Death is simply built into the very structure of the creation. The believer says, not so, not so. Death is God's voice of fury against sin. The curse is judicial. The curse is judgmental. The curse is the penalty of God against the creation for man's sin. But this is exactly why, of course, forgetting all this, the theistic evolutionists blithely talk about the fact that you can go to the creation and you can study the creation and you can determine from the creation how the world came into existence. Imagine that. There's no way you could do that. Not if you believe in the reality of the curse. How can one, by going to the creation, learn how the creation came into existence? When they piously talk about the fact that the creation, after all, is the Word of God as well, and that as part of general revelation, God is speaking the truth in the creation too, so that when the creation suggests that it's a very, very old creation, billions of years old, then we have to harmonize that with the Word of God in Scripture, when the fact of the matter is you can't hear the Word of God any longer in the creation. And even if you could, sinful man, blinded by the curse upon him, would no longer hear that Word of God. Sin had devastating effects. Now, says Article 2 of the Confession of Faith, God has also made himself more clearly and fully known to us by his holy and divine word, the sacred scriptures. There is a relation between the two, however, and it's that relation which is of concern to me. Calvin talks about this in his Institutes in a very well-known metaphor and I want to read that section out of the Institutes to you a moment at this point. I'm reading, maybe it's included in your outline, I'm reading from Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 1, Chapter 6, Paragraph 1. For as the aged or those whose sight is defective, when any book, however fair, is set before them, though they perceive that there is something written, are scarcely able to make out two consecutive words. That's because, of course, they're almost blind. But when aided by glasses, begin to read distinctly, so Scripture gathering together the impressions of deity which till then lay confused in their minds, dissipates the darkness and shows us the true God clearly. 
God, therefore, bestows a gift of singular value when for the instruction of the church. I like that uh, phrase in Calvin, for the instruction of the church. Revelation is particular. Don't forget that. For the instruction of the church, he employs not dumb teachers merely, but opens his own sacred mouth when he not only proclaims that some God must be worshipped, but at the same time declares that he is the God to whom worship is due when he not only teaches his elect to have respect to God, but manifests himself as the God to whom the respect should be paid. That's Calvin. That's his famous metaphor of the spectacles or eyeglasses of sacred scripture. The scriptures are necessary in order for us to see the word of God in the creation once again. Now, I want to say by way of a bit further explanation of this that it is my conviction that in connection with the flood, which is the history of which is recorded for us in Genesis, God also alleviated somewhat the curse on the creation. You have that striking passage, you know, in Genesis 8, last verses. And Noah builded an altar unto the Lord and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar and the Lord smelled a sweet savor, and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more everything living as I have done. While the earth remaineth, Seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. Now, without going into that passage in detail, that passage evidently teaches that at the time of the flood, the Lord created the seasons. There were no seasons before the flood. And that in creating the seasons, he alleviated somewhat the curse. Not completely, of course. That's Romans 8. Creation still groans and travails in pain together until now. But nevertheless, there is some easing of the curse. It was almost impossible prior to the flood for the church to survive because of the terrible curse. 
at the time of the flood, you know, when it finally came, there were only eight people in church on Sunday. That's all. It was all that was left of the whole the whole human race. Must have been 15 million people at least. Eight people. Now that was due to persecution. Two. But nevertheless, it was almost impossible for the church to survive. So for the sake of the church, that the church might be gathered, and that the kingdom of Antichrist might not be prematurely realized, as almost happened before the flood, the Lord alleviated the curse somewhat. And the result of it is that in a certain sense of the word, if you put on the spectacles of Scripture, you can see the word of God in creation a little bit easier than you could before the flood, even with the spectacles of Scripture. The print in the creation was a little larger. The blurring, the, the smearing of the words by the curse was somewhat eliminated. And the letters that formed the words in God's creation were a little clearer. But nevertheless, in addition to that, God gave to his church the spectacles of the scriptures, which is, says Calvin, the only way it is possible to see the word of God in the creation. That's the only way. Now, in the first place, that means that God just didn't simply hand the Scriptures to the church and say, here's your glasses, put them on. That wouldn't have done any good. But when God gave the Scriptures to the church, He not only gave them objectively to the church by the infallible record of the sacred Scriptures, but He worked in the hearts of God's people in such a way that they receive the Scriptures by faith and believe them. That's an essential part. That's the putting on of the, of the glasses. You see, that's faith. The wicked have the Scriptures too. They do. They have the Scriptures as eyeglasses. But what do they do? They put them on the ground and they jump on them, smash them to pieces. They don't want the Scriptures. And they think in the wisdom of their own conceits that they can see everything there is to see in the creation when they're blind as bats. So it is not only that God gives us the Scriptures as these eyeglasses that we need, but the work of faith in the hearts of God's people, which is the enlightening power of the Spirit, is the putting on of the eyeglasses, you see. So that by means of them, we are able to see the Word of God in all the creation about us. That first of all. You have to believe the Scriptures. And when you believe the Scriptures and all that are contained in them, then you are prepared to go to the creation 
and look at the Word of God in the creation. In the second place, we must not forget that the Word of God in the creation, in the final analysis, is Christ. Last time we talked about the fact that if you do not see Christ in a given passage in sacred scripture, you haven't understood the, the, the passage. Now I'm saying that if you don't see Christ in the creation, you don't understand the creation. Seems to me that the scriptures are clear on that, unmistakably clear. I can quote a few passages. I can quote, for example, John 1. The same word that was with God and the same word that was God, that was in the beginning with God, was the word by which all things were made and without which was not one thing made that was made. And that word by which all things were made was the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1 echoes that, that same idea. God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake unto us in times past by the prophets has in these last times spoken to us by the Son by the Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. That's the Son. And he is the brightness of God's glory, the express image of his essence, and He is the one who purged us from our sins and sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. The Word of God in the creation is Christ. And that's, that's exactly what makes the creation, in my estimation, so amazingly glorious. I know we can only see that dimly, even that. But the Scriptures give us the eyeglasses to see that. And you have that, therefore, in a variety of ways in the Scriptures. Let me briefly mention some of them. You have that, first of all, in the fact that names which the Scriptures give to Christ are names which are frequently taken directly from the creation. He is the lion of Judah's tribe. There is something about a lion that reveals Christ. He is the son of righteousness who arises, Malachi says, with healing in his wings. Or as Psalm 19 puts it, who comes as a bridegroom forth out of his chamber to run his course through the heavens. A bridegroom. 
who is the husband of his bride, the church. He is, says Solomon, in the Song of Solomon, the lily of the valley. You ever see Christ when you look at a shy lily of the valley hiding itself among the, the leaves of the plant? There's Christ in that. He is the rose of Sharon. That's why I planted a rose of Sharon in my backyard a number of years ago, but it didn't do very well and it was so ugly that I cut it down because it didn't remind me of Christ in its ugliness. It wasn't a nice rose of Sharon. But there are nice roses of Sharon. The Bible calls them that. Now, Those are, not, those are not names which are simply arbitrarily given to Christ so that in an effort to multiply the number of names which the Bible bestows upon Christ, it picks some names at random from the creation. No, no, no. He is the Rose of Sharon because He is the real Rose of Sharon and the one in your backyard is only a figure of Christ. That's all. And God happened to create the one in your backyard so that it could be a picture of Christ. There's that marvelous quote. I think I refer to it in my book, For Thy Truth's Sake. I do, in a footnote, which I don't think I should have done. should have put it in the body of the text. It's taken from Milton Terry's book on biblical hermeneutics. And in this section in his hermeneutics, he's talking about how the Bible is able to make use of signs that point to Christ. And this is what he says. May we not safely affirm that the analogies traceable between the natural and spiritual worlds are parts of a divine harmony which it is the noblest mental exercise to discover and unfold. And then Trench goes on to say, it is not merely that these analogies assist to make the truth intelligible, or if intelligible before, present it more vividly to the witnesses, to the mind. Their power lies deeper. They are arguments and may be alleged as witnesses the world of nature being throughout a witness for the world of spirit proceeding from the same hand. All lovers of truth know that the earthly tabernacle is made after the pattern of things seen in the mount. And the question suggested by the angel in Milton, that is in Milton's Paradise Lost, is often forced upon their meditations. What if earth be but the shadow of heaven and things therein, each to other like, more than on earth is thought? That's the point, see. God created all of this earthly after the pattern of the heavenly. It is a reflection of the heavenly. It is the shadow which the light of the heavenly casts 
Here below in this world of sin and darkness and shame and death, the light that shines from heaven because Christ is the Word. And it is ultimately in Christ that all the creation has its meaning and its significance and indeed its purpose. God, when He reveals by the Word which He spoke in the creature, the purpose why He had created it, shows us by the Scriptures, the eyeglasses of the Scriptures, that that purpose is not attained until Christ comes to redeem the whole creation and to make it reflect the glory that is His in His exaltation in heaven. There is some glimmer of that. There is some light that shines from Christ in this present world that we must see and can see with the spectacles of Scripture. I want to finish with a couple of uh, implications of what I have said. Not only does Scripture take from the creation names that belong to Christ, but Scripture also makes abundant use of this creation to illustrate spiritual truths. There are hundreds of them, hundreds of them in the Scripture, if we are sensitive to that. And if we are sensitive to that, not only as we read the sacred scriptures, but as we look at the creation about us. I think, for example, of Paul's use of the resurrection of the body, a seed put in the ground that has to die before it can bring forth a new plant as a picture of the resurrection of the body. I think of Psalm 1. And the graphic figure which John the Baptist picks up in his ministry of the wheat who are the elect and the chaff which the wind blows away and who picture the wicked and the final separation of the judgment day. I think of Jesus' own description of the judgment day in Matthew 25 in terms of sheep on his right hand and goats which are commanded to depart from him. Everywhere you turn in Scripture, you run across these figures. Why? Why? Simply because of the fact that when God made this earthly creation, He made it in such a way that it reflected the heavenly. And to one who puts on the Scripture, the spectacles of the Scriptures, directs one's attention to the heavenly. How? How can you look at the creation through the spectacles of Scripture without seeing the heavenly? This is the reason why the Lord turned to parables as methods of instruction. The kingdom of heaven is like unto a sower that went forth to sow. Matthew 13. Why? Is that just some kind of happenstance that a sower happens to reflect the spiritual and heavenly reality of the kingdom of Christ? No, no, no. God made it that way. 
God ordained from the very beginning when he formed all things that this world was not to be the reality, but that the reality was in, in the heavenly creation. And so much is the reality in the heavenly creation that it is, and I don't know how to express it any differently, the power of the heavenly creation that irresistibly pulls the earthly creation to itself. And behind it all, of course, is Christ, the Word of God by whom all things were made. It is for that reason, too, that, and this to me is extraordinarily important, it is for this reason that there are signs in the creation of Christ's coming. How can that be? How is it possible that you could have in this creation things that take place, that speak, that speak in God's language, that are the speech of God himself, of the truth of the return of Christ. How can you have that? Except Christ is that word which defines in all the creation the purpose of God when he first formed the heavens and the earth. Now, when you start talking about the signs, then you talk about history too. As Article 2 of the Netherlands Confession makes clear, it is not only creation itself, brute creation, and the creatures in them that reveal God to the child of God, but the history of the creation does as well. And the history of the creation is caught up in the signs of the coming of Christ. I call your attention to the fact that that cannot possibly be true except for two fundamental facts denied today almost universally, including the universe of the Reformed Church world. Number one is this, that all creatures continue to exist by the same word of God which called that creature into being, but all things are directed in the course of their pathway in the history of the world by that same word of God. We call that in essentials class, government. Providence consists in preservation and government. That is, that God, in the word that he speaks, which brings a creature into being, guides that creature infallibly towards the purpose which he has ordained for it, and which is expressed in the very word by which that creature continues to exist. But at the same time, that scope of providence implies in the second place the absolute, total sovereignty of God in the whole of his world. That's revelation. You can't have revelation if things take place by chance. You can't have revelation if the devil is in control of a significant part of the ends uh, uh, of, the, of the events that transpire in history. I'm reminded of the September 11 
terrorist attacks when Larry King on television got together a Protestant minister and a Jewish rabbi and a Catholic priest. And he said to these three, how do you explain this in terms of your religion and in terms of the fact that you all believe in God? Oh, God didn't do this. God didn't do this. All three of them. God would never do anything so terrible. But Larry King's no dumbbell, you know. So he said to them, I thought you believed, I, I thought your religions believed in a, in a God who was transcendent above the creation and who ruled in the creation. You should have heard the hemming and the hawing and the sputtering as all three tried to dodge the implications of that barbed arrow. But they refused, every one of them refused when they had the perfect God-given opportunity to testify of the truth refused to say, this also takes place by the sovereign control and direction of God. But then there's no revelation in creation and history. Don't forget that. Revelation in creation and history means God is absolutely sovereign. And to deny that sovereignty is simply to cut the rug, cut the foundation from out of the doctrine of revelation. That's why history reveals the signs of Christ's coming. And so the, the believer with the spectacles of Scripture in which all these things are made known sees all these things taking place and sees the hand of God as God is working His eternal purpose through Christ. And because it's through Christ, it's for the salvation of the church. Judgment? Yes. But Zion is redeemed, after all, through judgment. Christ comes to take his people to himself. And so you see in the creation God's marvelous works. It's almost as if, and I like to think of it that way for myself, it's almost as if God, by giving us the sacred scriptures, gives us the secret key to the understanding of all his works in all creation. What a privilege, what a wonder that is. He gives it to his people. He says, now I'm going to show you with the spectacles of scripture by observing the creation about you, which I have created and which I uphold and which I govern sovereignly, all my purposes that I purpose to do through Jesus Christ for you, for you, my people whom I love, I tell you these things because I love you. I tell you these things because this creation is yours. The meek shall inherit the earth. After all, only not this earth, that gloriously new earth that shall someday be united with heaven when all is one and when Christ has accomplished all the purpose that I have given him to do. I'm going to give this earth to you. I recall 
in my own life, as undoubtedly you do, moments in the contemplation of God's creation, which are so profoundly moving because of the overwhelming beauty of them that it brings tears to your eyes. Did that ever happen? That you almost feel like weeping. It's so beautiful. So indescribably beautiful you could weep. And then you think to yourself, if this creation, this sin-cursed creation, is so beautiful, what is it going to be like when we inherit the new heavens and the new earth, where there will be no more death and no more curse and no more suffering and no more pain, and it will be ours, when the beauty of it and the glory of it is the glory of our exalted Christ, who is Lord of all, and in whom are united all things to the praise and to the glory of God. That will be glory. But enjoy some of it now, will you? It's all around you. Walk up a goal and look at the chicory. And just look at the blue of the chicory. And ask yourself the question, how can anything be so blue, so blue? Yeah. Just look at it. Take the time. But don't stare yourself blind at the chicory plant. Let your eyes stray to glory, of which all of these things are but the picture and to which all these things point. Okay, we have some time now for some questions. Michael's question is this. Was the revelation of God through Jesus Christ manifested in the creation present before the fall? All Christ's works, which he performs as sovereign whereby he delivers his people from sin and death and the creation from the curse through the power of his atoning sacrifice and glorifies it. Was that evident in the creation before the fall? That's the question. I think in some measure it was, yes. And I think that for <coughs> two reasons, especially. First reason is found in Genesis 1. And I refer particularly to the verses that describe the creation of the heavenly bodies. God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs. Now a sign is an earthly reality that points to a spiritual reality. That's a sign a spiritual truth, a spiritual event. So if God created the heavenly bodies for signs, already then, at the very beginning, they pointed to heavenly reality. Second thing that makes me think that is, and I've had this on the board before, I think maybe last year, 
there is an analogy, if you read Genesis 1, between the creation in which God placed Adam and the temple or the tabernacle. You read that there was a land that went under the name of Eden and that, better get my directions right here, and that to the east of Eden, God planted a, a garden that was called paradise and that in the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life at which point he met Adam and had fellowship with him. That is a picture of the plan for the tabernacle and the temple with the outer court comparable to Eden and the inner sanctuary, which was composed of a holy place and the holy of holies, where God met with his people, just as God met with his people with Adam. God was in the holy of holies behind the veil, between the wings of the cherubim. And the people were in the outer court. And the Aaronitic priesthood was in charge of the holy place and the altar of burnt offering where sacrifices were made so that God could dwell with his people. And if you read John 2, especially, where Jesus cleanses the temple, then Jesus makes it clear that this was a picture of him, of his body in particular. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will build it up. But he spake of the temple of his body. You're acquainted with that. Nevertheless, having said that, you must understand that Adam couldn't see that. As much as Adam could see the word of God in the creation in a far fuller and more perfect way than we can see it, that was only in the limited scope of this earthly creation, that's all that he could see that word of God. And that's because of the fact that there is only one way to see Christ, and that is against the background of sin and death and the curse. That's the only way. So from a certain point of view, I would say that although this was present in the original creation, it was there very dimly, and that the curse Sin and the subsequent curse had the effect of bringing out that in the creation which was invisible to Adam. Something like invisible writing, which becomes visible when treated with certain chemicals, say, for example. So that when the curse was imposed upon the creation... While its negative purpose was to show the wrath of God against sin, its positive purpose was to reveal Christ. And that's why it was accompanied with a promise immediately, I will put enmity between me and the woman. We cannot see Christ in the creation any more than in the scriptures except against the background of sin and the curse. That's the only way. Adam had no need for Christ, so he couldn't see him either. From that point of view, we understand the creation better than Adam did. Thanks to the Word of God in the Scriptures, which reveals to us things in the creation which even Adam could not see. Jeff's question is, how, how far may we carry the analogies of
finding in this earthly creation figures of the heavenly, especially when the scriptures themselves do not give us the analogy. I think that if we are conscious of the truths of the scriptures, that the Lord gives us the freedom to make those analogies on our own insofar as they remain within the bounds of the scriptures. You know, I don't have a garden anymore because, to my dismay, I discovered that one man sows and another reaps. And I was the one that did the sowing, but never the reaping. So I quit. But I used to be out there in the garden hoeing and pulling weeds and... I used to think, boy, this is a lot like discipline work in the church. Hard, difficult, toilsome labor. Because in the garden of God there are weeds. Now that borders on a scriptural figure, of course. You have something similar to that in Hebrews 6. But I think the Lord gives us an open door with his parables in the scriptures, with many, many figures to find in the creation analogies that fit. I think we have that right. I would even go so far as to say that duty, that calling. Uh, the question is, how does such a view of the creation influence our attitude towards the creation? It does it in this way without getting down to concrete specifics, it does it in this way, that it gives the believer a respect for the creation. This is God's world. And God redeemed it through Christ. And Christ is saving it right now. He's, as it were, from his position of exaltation in heaven, pulling the creation towards him. That gives me a respect for the creation. So what I'm saying is this. The believer recognizes this is God's world and he treats it with respect, all the while understanding that it's a world which God gives him to use. And he has the perfect right to use it as well. God saves his creation. I'm sorry, the question is, do we have any reason to think that there will be in heaven the same creatures that are here on earth? That's in the new heaven, yes. God saves this creation, so I think yes. But if you have a dog that you happen to be attached to when the dog dies, then you don't bury it and put a gravestone there, and this is Fido, rest in peace. You don't do that, because that dog is not going to go to heaven. But if you say to me, isn't the world of dogs part of God's creation that he redeems? Then I say, yes. And if you say, well, doesn't that mean that there will be dogs in heaven? Then I say, well, not in the way you're thinking of now by any stretch of the imagination. But in some way, yes. Just as the beauties of winter will be preserved for the new creation, and of spring, and of autumn, and of summer. The beauties of day and of night. The beauties of August and of February. And this creation as it now is, Paul says in Romans 8, 
this creation is groaning and traveling, waiting, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of the people of God. This creation knows, knows that it is going to be redeemed and it looks forward to its redemption just as you and I do. But just as we will be different and our bodies in the resurrection will be different, so will the creation. It'll be spiritual and heavenly. And, you know, I have an idea. I have no idea what the new creation is like. And I don't think that any efforts on our part to describe it would be successful simply because it belongs to a realm that is heavenly and spiritual. But the Bible tells us that heaven is home. And home is a place with which you are familiar. And I suspect that when you and I come to glory and see the beauties of heaven as they really are, we're going to say two things. We're going to say in the first place what the Queen of Sheba said to Solomon, the half has not been told me. But we're going to say in the second place, why, of course, this is what it's got to be like. This is home. I recognize it. I'm not a stranger here. I don't have to get used to this place. Somehow, if I had only paid more attention to the Word of God, and somehow if I had been more spiritually minded, and somehow if I had lived closer to God, I could have known that this is what heaven is going to be like. I think we'll say that too. It isn't as if we're going to come and we're going to say, now what? This is strange. I can't recognize anything here. This is unfamiliar. Oh no. We will say, this is home. This is home. All the rest on earth was foreign land. This is home. I recognize it as such. So there's that too. Okay, let's pray. Lord our God, we thank Thee for this time together tonight and in the weeks that have gone by. We thank Thee for the riches of Thy Word and of the truth of the Scriptures. We thank Thee for the beautiful creation in the midst of which we live, for truly the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth forth knowledge. How great thou art, O God! If only we were more sensitive, more aware of the greatness of thy glory and power and majesty, in all the works of thy hands. We would certainly praise thee far more than we do now. But we thank thee especially for the scriptures by means of which we are able to see all these wonders in the creation about us. And we thank thee, Lord, for our Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful and powerful and glorious Savior we have. To think that someday we shall see him face to face. And to think that someday he will give us the whole creation which he has redeemed with his own precious blood. That we may use it to the everlasting glory of thy name. We thank thee for salvation in Christ. And we look forward with eagerness and hope and longing to the day when thou wilt take us unto thyself where we may be with thee and the angels and the saints and Christ in the new heavens and the new earth to praise thee without sin forever and ever.
world without end. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. It is our hope that it was edifying to you. Please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to them to be notified as future messages are published. We welcome you to join us on Sundays for worship at 9.30 a.m. and 5 o'clock p.m. You can find more information about us at our website, hopeprchurch.org. Also, you can follow us on our Hope Protestant Reformed Church Facebook page, and you can email the Reform Witness Committee with any questions or feedback at hoperwc at gmail.com. Thank you.